Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Objective brought to you by the Ayn Rand Center UK, where we apply the practical philosophy of objectivism to everything. And today is a very somber day. Um, it is the uh, 22nd anniversary of 9-11, uh, a terrible day when uh, 19 uh, Islamist hijackers hijacked three planes and uh, murdered nearly 3,000 people with those planes. Uh, presently, uh, there are people reading off the names of the people that died, died at the World Trade Center, uh, people doing the same, celebrating a memorial at the Pentagon and probably Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where Flight 93 was taken down by some brave passengers who understood what was happening at the time and attempted to do something about it. The question that remains is, when will we learn the lessons of 9-11? And this, this makes this a particularly somber topic for me today because I don't have a great deal of optimism that we have learned the lessons uh, from 9-11. Um, looking, re reviewing Peacock's um, interview with Bill O'Reilly was a very, very depressing uh, experience for me. Um, and it shows me how far away the American public is, and certainly the pundits and the establishment, from uh, learning any lessons that could actually make us Americans safer. Well, to help me unpack this, dark subject uh my good friend james valiant james how you doing today i am a little um somber and depressed as i woke up this morning as i did 22 years ago i i etched in my head forever um my wife and i both lived in new york city for a while and my wife worked uh in downtown <laughs> manhattan and knew several people who were killed that day um my co-author on Creating Christ was a friend of one of the guys who was a hero on the plane that was taken down in Pennsylvania that day. So for me, uh, and I lived in New York City and loved that place. I remember living in, I lived in Brooklyn for a while. I lived in Greenwich Village for a while. But when I lived in Brooklyn, I would cross the Brooklyn Bridge into lower Manhattan all the time, just so I could see. It was a good walk, by the way, a nice healthy walk from, you know, where I lived to uh, Manhattan. But I would get inspired every morning as I would look at the skyline of downtown Manhattan. I think I'm not alone in objectivists and having a very personal connection to that. I remember the wonderful times I had at the top of that World Trade Center. And I, I have to admit, I got tipsy on martinis at Windows on the World one night, but I will never forget the fun I had there. And um, so it means a lot to me. And if you ask me, have we learned the lessons? Well, would it surprise- we get to, let's, let's get to that in a second. I also want to give my own personal anecdote because, um, you know, that was the center of commerce. The World Trade Center was seen as the center of commerce for the world, the heart, the heartbeat of liberty for the world. It was my first experience entering New York City in the early 90s. I came through the New Jersey tran uh, transit from Trenton, New Jersey to the World Trade Center, actually came up from the exit and standing over me were these two ginormous buildings. I still have snapshots from my disposable Kodak camera going straight up to the top of them it was a it was a um it was unnervingly amazing it was a it was a awe-inspiring experience um i like you i think we can uh, understand what people say during the kennedy assassination that they could remember exactly what they were doing at that particular time of the day because it was such a 
uh, uh, horrifying event. It implied so much uh, for for the country and for the world that it's seared into your memory. I myself was woken up by a friend of mine uh, who called me and said, there's been a terrorist attack. You have to turn on the TV. I was in a daze as I turned on probably CNN or MSNBC and watched the terror unfold before me. I saw the second plane hit the building um, when we knew we were uh, then that it wasn't an accident. It was a terrorist attack. My friend knew somehow uh, beforehand or, or suspected. And the world has changed. I, like you, uh, I didn't live in New York, but I visited New York often uh, before the uh, before 2001, and it was a completely different place. The soul of New York lost something, lost, it lost itself. It was an undefeatable spirit at first, and it lost it. It became timid after that. Anyway, what say you with respect to the uh, to the lessons uh, learned, when will we learn these lessons? Have we learned any lessons? Not a single lesson, not a single lesson. Would it, now it's true that we've deprived them in some battles that I don't think accomplished much, but we have pushed them back a little bit psychologically, but that's about it. And resource-wise maybe, maybe because Russia's uh, bound up right now and it's uh, problems with Ukraine, there's a temporary delay, but Mark, let me ask you a question. Would it surprise you if some Islamist or jihadist organization reorganized and did another 9-11 today? Are there not millions of people willing to do precisely the same thing and are completely undeterred psychologically, morally, uh, from their ideological standpoint? Uh, are there not nations in this world that would be happy to support them in that effort? Uh, absolutely. So if you ask me 22 years later, are we in a different situation? Not much. You recall, let's get a little history lesson of the decades that it took to get to 9-11. Uh, I think that somehow in, in an important way, it began in the Munich Olympics back in the 1970s when those Israeli athletes were so brutally murdered. Or take, for example, the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, where America had such a pusillanimous reaction uh, to uh, what was clearly an act of war. And when we started our cowardice and appeasement then, it sent a really disastrous signal, I think, to the Islamic world. Um, and of course, in the early 1990s, the World Trade Center was bombed for the first time. And then throughout the Bill Clinton administration in the 90s, the USS Cole gets attacked, a Navy ship, several other attacks. Uh, uh, let's not let's not forget Beirut. We, we had a man. In, we had a man in office in in 1983, um, Reagan, who was supposed to be, according to uh, his reputation, a hawk a man who would not uh, allow any power to um, to attack the United States. And yet a Marine barracks in Beirut was attacked. Over 200 Marines were killed. And what was the American response? We knew Hezbollah was behind it. What was the American response? To get out. Our appeasement took 10, 20, 30 years for it to manifest in 9-11. So you tell me, and of course, there's been all kinds of terrorist attacks by jihadists since then. You tell me now we're 20 some years on, I am in no way reassured that this threat has been, in, has been in any way, it may have been delayed, it may have been pushed back, like I say, resource wise, but there's, we haven't changed the fundamental structure uh, of the world 
as it was. We fought the wrong wars. We fought them in the wrong way. When we went to Afghanistan, we let Al-Qaeda escape and bin Laden escape for years. And then we continued a senseless war in which British and American soldiers died for another 20 years to basically no end, in my view. And then, of course, George W. Bush thought Iraq was the war to fight. He takes out Saddam Hussein, and of course, he does a big favor to Iran, creating a giant power vacuum. It was the wrong war, and both were approached the wrong way. Even if you were to do a war against Iraq, you'd ha- you'd surely do it for the right reasons, and you would also include a hit on Iran, because you're just giving Iran a giant power vacuum, which they did, in fact, jump into and take advantage of. We objectivists were not uh, particularly uh, caught up in all the little divisions that American politicians and intellectuals were making between Sunni and Shiai and don't worry, they're they're enemy. No, 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 no. Since then, we've certainly uh, talked about Hezbollah and Hamas. We've certainly learned since then that they're happy to work together when necessary and support each other when necessary to attack the West that they still want to destroy. that's simply uh, the reality that we're that we're dealing with here. No, we have the, the world is no better off with respect to the jihadists. But American liberties have been declined. You look at the uh, reaction of George Bush. He gave us this Patriot Act, and so what did it create? The FI, gave new powers to the FISA courts, which were immediately abused. And civil liberties of Americans are constantly being now abused routinely by the government, thanks to this law, which mostly if and how did of course Americans had to suffer. They had to suffer at airports. They had to. Suffer. They're still suffering to a degree at airports. So we put it punished ourselves for what they did. And instead of having to go through all that rigmarole, we should have shattered and destroyed the heart and center of the Islamic uh, world and the savage the- theocratic ideology behind it, namely the Islamic Republic of Iran and anyone else who might have come in to support them and shattered them and shattered their will to, to fight. It is no- what would happen. And they're still. Hmm getting closer and closer to a nuke. What will happen, Mark, when uh, Iran finally, they're pretty savage, uh, they are pr- primordial savages, so they're having a hard time with it, and, Israeli, and Israel keeps pushing them back, but what should happen to the world should Iran get a nuclear bomb? The world would be far less safe than it was the morning before 9-11. We have not addressed the problem in any way, shape, or form. Uh, more than that, like you point out, Americans' cowardice in the, in our, our lack of moral resolve and backbone has, I think, only encouraged our enemies in a variety of contexts, from Russia to China to North Korea to you name it. And now they're all happily working together. Um, now, let me ask you a question about that. We say lack of moral backbone, but it seems to me it's less lack of moral backbone and more uh, erroneous moral premises that are guiding uh, our our war our, our, atta- our attack on the concept of what warfare should be. This was very apparent when Bill O'Reilly uh, interviewed uh, Leonard Peikoff. He was horrified by the things that Leonard Peikoff said and closed and uh, obtuse with respect to the points that Leonard Peikoff was making. Our military right now is governed by a, a series of moral laws called just war theory. Now, if if you know anything about that, could you unpack that a little bit and and help explain to the audience why such a moral premise is actually harmful to an innocent nation defending itself. Well, what it does is it's what it mostly does is it ties our ability to do war and how we do war and the 
rules of engagement with that war. It, it assumes that, and this is George Bush bought into it from the absolute beginning. We have to reduce collateral damage, civilian casualties. We can't attack mosques. We can't do this and that and this other because a just war, don't you see? We have to constantly be worried about uh, civilian casualties that are the direct moral responsibility of the aggressors and the theocratic dictators who create this war. And so this bizarre notion that somehow if you're going to do a war, you have to do it with your hands tied morally is uh, morally reprehensible in my mind. It doesn't even. But how can you make this? How can you make this point to people who don't understand that the aggress that any casualties that result from uh, an aggressor um, are the aggressor's moral responsibility. So if you as the innocent person are defending yourself and accidentally in the in the in the in the act of defending yourself against an aggressor to end the aggression permanently, hurt and or kill uh, quote, quote unquote innocent people, the the re moral responsibility for those casualties are on the aggressor. Now, how can you make that plain to people? They simply shut off. It's a trigger for them. Their mind goes blank. They say, you just can't, you simply can't do that. Well, you know, there was something unique about this. And I think part of it was an appeasement of the psychology of Islam. What uh, George Bush did in the wake of 9-11 is he didn't want to piss off the uh, Islamic world, the billion Muslims worldwide. He didn't want to take on a war against the whole of Islam. <laughs> One can understand a desire not to take on the a war. We don't believe we needed to do any such thing. But the point is that there are tribalist, racist, theocratic, savage Muslims out there who think that even if you kill a Muslim in self-defense, you being a uh, some infidel uh, have violated our, our, our uh, well, see, even if it's a terrorist that you kill, even if it's a, but imagine, boy, this uh, innocent, look at what the Palestinians do. They surround their military in, in, in the, the West uh, uh, Bank, uh, Gaza, uh, where the Palestinians control things. What do they do? They surround their military targets with women and children. They do it on purpose to do to create just this kind of moral conflict. Now, Christianity, of course, molds the morality on the West's part, too. So there's two things we if if we could get away with it, we'd turn the other cheek and be happy to turn the other cheek and forgive our enemies. And then in the face of all that, you've got a you've got the psychology of the Muslim world. Kill a single civilian Muslim and you're at war with all of us. Now, fears like that and a philosophy like Christianity behind it that says, well, our natural impulse should be turn the other cheek. You've set yourself up for exactly that. So what does George Bush do? He The next morning, he says Islam is a religion of peace. No, 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 no. The Islamic world needed to demonstrate that they were uh, peaceful and civilized and not the primordial savages that their extremists appear to be. It was not up for us to have this religious and moral uh, solidarity. Oh, Islam is just like Christianity and you guys want peace just like we do. No, uh, no, 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 no. It obviously is a moral question, a philosophical question. It comes down to the righteousness of self-defense, uh, which uh, Christianity is the enemy of on the one hand, and our appeasement of the Islamic world, obviously, was the other part of. Uh, so we didn't identify the enemy. We know where ideology. It's a funny thing, because it's kind of for the first time in an, a war in American history. You know, we fought the commies, we fought the Nazis. We fought the, for the first time in American history, we did not name the ideology that we were fighting. And that's so right. we named we named a technique. We named a military technique and called it, it terrorism. And that's what we were fighting, terrorism. 
not not fundamentalist Islamic ideology, Islamofascism. Now, some on the right attempted to define the terms that way, but also those people on the right were responsible for building up this movement, not just Reagan's appeasement of Hezbollah by moving out of Beirut, but his funding and uh, funding of the Mujahideen against the atheist uh, Soviet Union, he made Osama bin Laden. And when you think about Bush being blinded by his religious fundamentalism and refusing to attack a religious country like Iran and going instead for the socialist secular country, Iraq, I can't help but think that in many respects, conservative uh, focus on religion as a primary ethical value moved them in their foreign policy decisions as well. What I say you? Agree. I absolutely have to agree. But, you know, appeasement, like I say, has sort of been built into this uh, American view of morality. You know, here we are. We had a discussion for the, you know, a couple of weeks ago about the morality of dropping the uh, nuclear bomb. That kind of discussion tells you the kind of moral context that we're dealing with here. If you can't think through that in a straightforward way, right? We're not American lives first. If it saves American lives, drop that bomb. But then the wider context, wait a minute here, didn't we even save Japanese lives in the process of uh, dropping those nuclear bombs? Yeah, we did. And did we crush the will of the militist uh, religionists in Japan to continue to fight? Yes, we did. But that's what you have to do. And that's what we were on. And likewise, likewise. Simply because we didn't have the moral principle of who we were fighting. Yeah, and likewise, we did the same with Nazism. Now, this lack of identification of the enemy, the, the failure to identify fundamentalist Islamic um, um, totalitarianism as as the enemy resulted in a, in a, a security state that has become far overblown and bloated and to an anti-profiling perspective. Now, in my view, profiling is uh, which is has a bad is a bad word to most people uh, when they hear it on the news. Profiling is the is the means by which law enforcement can you know focus resources, right? When they when they when they when they can limit down the the profile of the uh, the criminal, they don't have to spread their resources too thin. As now, as you see, when TSA searches everybody and you get randomly searched, I see 70 year old grandmothers from Northridge getting, uh, you know, practically strip search. It's a waste of time. Profiling is good when you don't know the people you are dealing with. You have to deal with a uh, a conceptual notion of what the criminal is. Right. And you have to start with identifying who the criminal is first. You notice how they, they created this sort of permanent war against a tactic, an endless war, and they kind of warned us that it was be an endless war. Now, right there, that tells you that these people don't. They, what's good about war? And why do you want it to last forever? And why don't you have a solution that will end this permanent war? And so what we have is even when we're no longer at war or fighting uh, jihadist terrorists, we have all of these restrictions still on our civil liberties. Yeah. Grandma's getting felt up at the airport. What the hell do we allow that for? I mean, that's absolutely insane. We This foreign uh, intelligence, uh, this secret star chamber that we created, uh, people back said, look, you have one-sided uh, search warrants being granted by a secret federal court. That's going to be abused. Guess what? 
folks, it took about a decade before it was obvious that it was being seriously abused. Before that, Snowden could point out to us how our national security uh, agency was spying on Americans. President Obama assured us no one, no Americans were getting spied on. That was just a flat out lie. Edward Snowden, who's now having to hide in Russia, revealed the truth. And so all these civil liberties violations that were unprecedented in, in American history to some extent, came into effect, they're still in effect, and we're no longer at war with Islam. Now think about that. They used it as a justification to grossly expand the power of government forever and to get us into this concept of an endless permanent war that we would never win because we would never just hit right at the heart of it and destroy their will to fight because we don't understand self-defense. Uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, you know what's funny? To, you know it's it's it sort of reflects this too. There are some states that don't have stand your ground and castle doctrine laws built into their into their legal statutes. I think California may be one of them, where you have to do everything you can to get away from the threat before you can stand your ground and actually address it. I think that's a fundamental threat to your own life. It does not hold your life, your innocent life as a standard of value in the in the legal system. I think that's very dangerous. Our war should be conducted with the intention of ending the threat permanently, permanently. like we did with Nazi Germany. Correct. Yes. When I was a prosecutor in California, we had, in effect, the standard stand your ground rule. You do not have to retreat in the face of a threat. Since then, in recent years, now get this, talk about the decay in the very moral idea you're talking about, which must necessarily affect the way we approach law enforcement, as well as war, as well as war. It's the same psychology. Uh, even if the thug is setting fire to a, a government building in Portland during the 2020 riots, the government can't use real force to stop that thug from setting fire to a building that has people in it. Now, when you get reach that point of moral confusion, uh, uh, law enforcement, the uh, engagement of war, just expect, just expect more violence. You're encouraging it. It's the David and Goliath system of um, uh, measuring good and evil. If you're poor and weak and considered to be downtrodden and oppressed, you have the, the moral right to do anything you want to anybody who sits above you in that hierarchy. Uh, anyone who is above has no moral right to defend themselves or protect themselves look, at simple, all. Look, in a simple bar fight, if I punch, if someone has punched me really hard and I punch them back and I put them on the ground, their being on the ground is not the end of the matter. They could get right. up. I have prosecuted right. bar fights to know that just because dude is on the ground does not mean the fight's over. Uh, you know, I told the story before and I tell it again when I was what, five or six years old, I big brother. And I was like a little five or six year old, bro. I hit my big brother once, you know, punched him like a little five or six year old, which punches big brother. My big brother said to me, Jimmy, I'm going to give you this one this one, and you'll get away with it. But next time, if you hit me, I will hit you back 10 times harder, and I'm bigger and older. That left an impression on my little brain. And you, and in self-defense, you have that right to hit back 10 times harder to psychologically crush the will of the enemy to fight. And short of that, we're playing games, in my view. Indeed. So the real enemy was Iran. Uh, we should have attacked them in 79, decimated that revolution from the very beginning, unapologetically uh, planted, as we did in, in uh, um, Japan, 
a, a, a person to force constitutional rule on them, whether they liked it or not. And guess what? They would like it eventually. Yes, that sounds terrible to some folks, but guess what? We wouldn't have the looming threat of Islamists as fanatics who are about to get a nuclear weapon that they could use on any city at any time. Yes, sir. And I know altruists, but look at the oppression that's been going on for now 40 years in the Islamic Republic of Iran. If you really cared about other people in this world, if you really cared about women in Iran, for example, you'd have wanted that government gone long ago. And they, how many acts of war have they engaged in against America and Israel over the last 40 years that we have just turned a blind eye to? And that is a betrayal, not only of our security interests, but frankly, the rights of the people in Iran today. That's right. The That's right. The real heroes in Iran have been those women who have been taking off their their burqas and their hijabs and walking through the streets like free women, like they used to be in the 50s uh, right. when they could be when they could be doctors and educators uh, instead right. of uh, women shackled to the slavery of a home life and subservient to a man. I have a couple of uh, super chats here to get to, and then we have to conclude. Jonathan Honig for $4.99. Thank you, Jonathan. Catherine, member for six months. She lived in Long Island, New York at the time, waterfront property. We had black helicopters overhead for weeks. Uh, that's terrible. Ashley Shrug for $1.99 was in eighth grade home economics when she heard the news. Uh, Catherine, again, for $9.99, everyone was waving the American flag, but threatening and assaulting anyone who looked Middle Eastern. Disgraceful founding fathers would uh, would be so proud. Sarcasm. Um, yes, I'm sure there. we've had plenty of reactions like that. Let's not forget Wilson and his anti-German acts. Roosevelt, the lionized Roosevelt, President Roosevelt of the Democratic Party, actually put Japanese uh, American citizens into concentration camps, stole their property in order to do it. Upcoming shows, uh, 6 p.m. UK time, the reality show on 9-11. How would today's leaders respond? I think we've sort of semi-answered that today with fecklessness, with lack of focus, with appeasement, most likely thinking that diplomacy is the way you appease an aggressor who only understands the language of violence. Any final words, uh, James, before we conclude today's daily objective? No, but this sure does focus on, you know, I'll just end it with one thought. The one time I had an image on Facebook covered up, uh, it was funny because it was a, pr a pristine picture. It wasn't the airplanes hitting the towers. It was a pristine picture of the towers before they were hit beautiful picture. And the text read, I've never seen faith move mountains, but I have seen it bring down towers. Facebook covered that mm. up simply for the text, for the words mm. that were offensive to Islam. Now that mm. kind of tells you everything about the lack of moral understanding on the West's part uh, about what the enemy was and who the enemy was. And it focuses on the importance of philosophy. Ladies and gentlemen, it is philosophy that brought down those towers. It is a war of civilizations that brought down those towers. So study philosophy. It is what generates all this. It is the answer, if there is an answer. So, and we know the philosophy to, to turn to, that of Ayn Rand. Um, philosophy rules the world, ladies and gentlemen, for good or ill. It is. And while you're studying that philosophy, folks, remember to look inward and always check your premises. We'll see you in a couple of minutes. Peace.